We've been working through a uh, series since the fall through Galatians, and so I'm going to be uh, carrying on with that series this morning. We're finishing off chapter 3, and uh, we'll be getting there in just a second. Next week, uh, Luke will be speaking on chapter 4, and uh, looking forward to that. And uh, we've, been, we've been going through Galatians bit by bit, verse by verse. That's what we like to do as we study the Word of God and, uh, and really hear from Him. Because this last chapter is not going to be a chapter that many preachers would go willingly to because it's a tough one. It's a difficult passage to understand, a difficult passage to pull apart, a difficult passage to apply. But you guys did great. We saw people come to know Jesus. We saw people added to the church through that chapter 3, and we're very grateful for that. Before we get into chapter 3, the, uh, the final part of the chapter, let's just, uh, let, me, let me just frame it a little bit as to where we're, where we're going. One of the things that is interesting about the culture that we live in right now is that we are very much multi-generational. If you look around this, this room, you're going to see people from all sorts of different generations. And in our culture in Kelowna, we have representatives of these cultures and, and generations. And I'm just going to be really straight and honest with you. We, we kind of wind each other up, as we say in Britain. We, we, kind, of, we kind of annoy one another as a culture. You know, you, you start with the, uh, the Gen Zs. Gen Z or Gen Z, if you want to do it the, the American way, uh, they're aged between 7 and 22. Age 7 and 22. They're Gen Z, otherwise called the Linksters. These young people have grown up thinking and being uh, with the internet, thinking about the internet, and so we call them the Linksters. And uh, they're, they're an interesting group. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Then you've got the Millennials. Oh, the Millennials. They get a bad rap, don't they? Uh, This is their age, 23 to uh, 39. So I am firmly in the middle of those millennials. You know, us us millennials get a bad rap. Um, Their age between 23 and 39. They're actually older than you think they are. So there's a lot of you who are millennials. And you'll hear things like they're the entitled generation. You know, they're like beanbags, good coffee, you know, warm hugs and, you know, individuality and they need their safe spaces, their, their, you know, their staircases to sit on and take a breather, all that. They get a lot of criticism. The reality is, though, that Kelowna is a millennial city. You're going to hear me talk about that a lot over the next few months. We need to kind of church, we need to wake up and realize that the people that we are trying to reach may not think the way that you think they think. We're doing a lot of reading and studying around these different cultures and generations. It's really important. Do you remember that passage in Acts where Paul goes into Ephesus and he's looking around uh, Ephesians and, and uh, the, the, the church of that area and he knows the culture that he's trying to reach. He contextualizes the gospel. To the Jews I become a Jew, to the Gentiles I become a Gentile. And so he will do whatever it takes in order to reach different generations, different cultures. We have to do the same. As long as it's not illegal or immoral, let's use it to reach people for Jesus. So the millennials, they're out there. Then you've got the Gen X. I am Gen X, aged between 40 and 55. I'm just Gen X, though. Just Gen X. 40 to 55. You are the latchkey kids otherwise known as. Those ones where mums and dads were working really hard that, you know, they just, you kind of went in and out by yourself. You went out early in the morning and you were out all day running around, getting into trouble, smashing stuff up, and then you'd come back. You actually remember life before the internet. 
Millennials, a lot of millennials don't. You do. I do. I remember teaching without the internet. Actually going into, taking kids into a library with books and using, I know, books to do research. Like opening them. I mean, it's crazy stuff. <sighs> Dust. You know, that, that kind of thing. Those, those are the Gen X. That's, that's where I am. Then you've got the boomers, 55 to 75. Yes, give a shout out. For the boomers, they're getting a lot of criticism right now. The okay boomer thing. Yeah, okay boomer. You know, that, that sort of thing. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you are proving you're a boomer. I'm sorry. It's, it's, that, it's the age between 55 and 75 and then the traditionalists. Uh, oh, by the way, the 55 to 75, this isn't me. Sociologists say this. So 55, 75 boomers are known as the me generation. Very entitled, very self-focused, very success oriented, and I deserve this, I'm entitled to this, that, that kind of generation, it's kind of interesting, very similar to millennials in lots of different ways, but without the internet, something to think about as you do your research in your own time, uh, traditionalists, using books, not the web, traditionalists, 75 plus, the silent generation, also called radio babies, or the forgotten generation, so you've got all these generations, and we're really critical of one another, you could argue that I've kind of poked fun at all of them, and I've tried to do it with all of them, apart from my mum and dad's age, because, you know, because I'm being respectful to, to that age, mum and dad. Um, so, that, that we, we're very, very critical of one another. Let's be honest. The boomers in the room, you do not get millennials. Millennials, you do not understand boomers. You certainly don't understand Gen Z. They are changing. They reckon that youth culture is changing every eight months. It changes and shifts constantly. And here's the reality. Christian friends, churches, parents, listen to this. Things that we think work when it comes to encouraging young people, millennials, Gen Zs especially, and even Gen X into church, it doesn't work. Because... We've, we've, how are we going to reach one another? How are we going to connect with one another? How are we going to actually see these generations all one for Jesus? Can I tell you how it's not going to happen? It is not going to happen because it's been proved over and over. It's not going to happen by programs, cool music, lights, lasers, and smoke. It's not going to happen in that way. And you can, I can say that to a boomer or a traditionalist. Having a great seniors program is not going to reach people for Jesus. It's been proven over and over and over again. Programs don't win people to Jesus. You can make church really cool, and we've tried it, especially between the 80s and the mid to late 2000s. We tried to make church really cool. We've had candles. We had different seating patterns. We had different worship. We had you know, different presentations. We didn't use the word sermon we used it talks or conversations. We used movie clips instead of the Bible. We did all this. Let's just make church cooler. Church will fill up. And guess what? It didn't work. It worked a little bit, but then where are they now? Where are they now? The so-called seeker-friendly movement didn't work. And what we need to wake up and realize, for those of you who are like, we need to make church cooler, we need to make church better, we need to be more programmed, if we could just do this... You need to understand that your preference is not a code in how church grows. Your personal music preferences aren't how church growth happens. We need to let go of that. 
because it doesn't work. Because we live in a world that is already cool. Look at Kelowna. It's utopia. It really is. We're sipping a nice cup of choo-choo in the morning and we've got a beautiful sunrise or sunset. We've got everything we could ever, ever imagine or want and we've got this lovely lake. We go to concerts that blow our minds. We can't as a church keep up, nor are we called to. We're not called to do that. We live in this beautiful city and listen, only made possible by parts of the world being in a mess. Our city, our utopia, our privilege is only possible because of the social justice that's happening in places like Vanessa lives in India. Our world is broken. Our world is broken. It's not delivering this utopia, this beauty, this Kelowna, these these generations, these ideas, these preferences, these codes are not delivering on changing the internal. We make the outside look great while on the inside we might have nice coffee but we have no meaning. You've got millennials and Gen Zs and some Gen Xs as well working on $2,000 MacBooks, sipping good coffee, wearing nice clothes, working for a really cool company that has beanbags. And yet, they're anxious, broken. Their family is in a mess. Their relationships are breaking down. There's no character vision in our society. This idea of strong character isn't there. The use of pornography is on the rise at a rampant rate. There's injustice, there's brokenness, there's inequality, there's racial injustice. The list goes on. So we might be in this utopia. We might have an idea of how things should be according to our own generation. And yet as a church, we need to look at ways, the way, as to how we actually see churches grow. In other words, how do we see more people getting baptized? How do we see more people, not just moving from church to church, and there are times when that is appropriate and right, but not just that church growth happens because the latest, coolest, and hippest pastor comes into town and that church fills up, but how many people coming to know Jesus cross-generationally? How does that happen? Thankfully, as we look at this scripture this morning, we're going to see some answer because it was written in a world that had been completely turned upside down. See, Jesus, right at the end of his ministry, and John, he talks about this in John chapter 17, he actually tells us how people are going to come to know Jesus. He's going to say, and I'm paraphrasing, you can read John 17 for yourself, and I preached on it before. He says, look, the way the world, our culture, our Gen Zs, Gen X, millennials, boomers, traditionalists, how they are going to find out about Jesus, he said, is not by programs or churches or this or your personal preferences becoming the way. That's not going to happen. He says this, the way they are going to know is by your love for one another. That's how people are going to know. By this church being a microcosm of the kingdom of God. By this church with our eclectic group of people that we have, our family. And, I, you know, and, and really what happens in our church is we tend, to, we, we tend to have, because of the, and I'm not even begrudging it because it's our culture, we have a revolving group of people who are engaged and part of our church. They're just not necessarily here every week. So you could probably flip this congregation again on the number of people we have in the south. 
That's just our culture. That's just the way church culture is now. I used to moan about it. Now I accept it. So you take this group, different nationalities, different races, different sexes, different socioeconomic statuses, uh, different experiences, different backgrounds, different views, different passions, different giftings, different um, uh, 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 strengths, and yet our love for one another is what is going to reach the people. How do we as a church engage our community by seeking unity and love in here? Jesus said that. So if you disagree and think, well, no, I think it's by having more program, you need to say that to Jesus, John chapter 17. Because that is his word, by your love for one another. So with all that in mind, we're going to examine just over the next few minutes, how do we reach this generations in a way that actually sees people coming to know Jesus? Not just churches filled, but baptisms. Okay? So Galatians chapter 3. Verse 23, back end of the chapter, he says, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ to put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So something amazing happened at this time. Rome was an incredibly divided and angry society. You think our society is divided between the different generations and viewpoints? We got nothing on Rome. You've got Jews and Greeks, you've got slaves and frees, you've got male and female, you've got different socioeconomic classes, you've got different views about multiple gods, you've got, it's all over the shop. And then something amazing happened, and you can see it in this uh, one verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no female, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Something amazing happened, Christ Jesus happened. Jesus Christ came into the world, lived a life that was perfect, fully man, fully God, went to the cross for my sin, took the punishment I deserve, it died with him, his life given to me, changes my life radically, and what happened is in the Roman society, literally the world got turned upside down. Suddenly babies that were usually left by the river to die unwanted were being taken into family homes by Christians, and that's where adoption came from. You can track back and see Christianity affecting social justice, equality, education. All these different things that we love to have in our society is rooted in Christianity. And it turned the world upside down. This deeply divided uh, uh, culture was brought together and changed by a group of people made common in Jesus Christ. All one. Their unity, their love, their care for one another, their passion for the King Jesus united them and it changed a world. It changed a society. So when I say, when Jesus said, you're going to see lives changed by love for Jesus and love for one another, it literally, history points that to being the case. So even if you're not sure about the Bible, read history. 
you're going to see a, a changing point, a pivot in society that started with this person, this God called Jesus Christ. And this is the pivotable, uh, pivotable, pivotable, pivotal, try again, verse that communicates that. This verse also, I'm going to jump back into this verse in a few minutes, is hugely misquoted. Massively misquoted. Oh, so that means that we can be gender fluid. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. We're going we're to get back to that in a, in a second. So this unity astonished a world. Here's what's amazing about this passage. I'm a pretty passionate person. For those of you who've not been before, probably can tell that by now. I'm very passionate about what I believe in and about my viewpoint. And, you know, I, I'm, I've, I've done the education and, and it's not, I've not, never went to seminary. For those of you who don't know, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Never went to seminary, but I got my teaching degree and then I got my master's in leadership and management. It's all about, it's all about how society and motivational management, organizational structure, that's my kind of background. I'm very passionate which means that I can get angry really quick. When somebody comes across my path that just like, oh, gosh, really? Like, because I'm passionate and because I'm reasonably well-read and educated and, and all these different viewpoints, I've got my experiences and my viewpoints and thoughts. As do you, so don't judge me. When we come against somebody that doesn't think like we think, we get wound up, as we'd say in Britain. It's like, oh, Maybe it's a traditionalist looking at a millennial. Maybe it's a boomer looking at a Gen Z. Maybe it's a millennial looking at the boomers. Whatever it is, you're just like, man alive, that You're just like, why do you think that way? Why do you do that? Why do you go there? Why are you so fill in the blank? This verse tells me that I can embrace them. That I can love them. Please remember this statement. I've said it lots of times. I don't know where we got the idea that in order to love somebody, we have to agree with them. We can disagree and love one another. I disagree, I've said this illustration before, with my son Jack. I don't reject him every time I disagree with him. I don't stop loving him because he does something I wouldn't do. That's ridiculous. So this idea in our society that says, in order for you to love me, you've got to agree with everything that I think and do is completely unbiblical and not right and just ridiculous. This verse tells me that I can disagree with you and embrace you. How can I do that? It's so beautiful. It's because of this guy, Christ Jesus. Because I'm mental. I'm crazy. I'm broken. I have issues, I have challenges, I have sin in my life. And yet Jesus Christ loved me. And if Jesus can love me and all my crazy, he can love you and all your crazy. Because let's be honest, is there any crazy in the room? One. Thank you. Was that Dawn? Oh, it was you. Okay, I figured it could either be Sarah or Dawn. He loves you and your crazy. He loves me and my crazy. Not only does he love me, he likes being with me. Not only does he like being with me, he likes me. Because the Bible says I've got to love you. It doesn't tell me that I've got to like you. He likes me. 
The scripture says he rejoices over you. He rejoices over me. So if he can do that to me, knowing intimately all the issues I have, how much more can we do that to people who are so different and weird and crazy that we tend to criticize really quickly, church, really quickly critical of people that we disagree with. Stand in judgment against them, not in a, not in a righteous way, but in a selfish, righteous way that says this, you are different from me, you should be more like me, therefore I'm going to dislike you. Righteous judgment is, you are different from me, you are broken, you are sinful, and so was I, and so am I, and I am saved by grace, and if Jesus loves me, I can love you. That makes people sit up and take notice in our world. See, Jesus unites the crazy people because there's three sides to every story, isn't there? There's your story, there's my story, and there's his story. There's your story, there's my story, and there's the truth. Whenever as a pastor I go into any challenges when it comes to marriages or or anything like that, I know there's always three sides to every story. His story, her story, and the truth. Well, when it comes to me and Jesus, there's And your viewpoint, there's your viewpoint, there's my viewpoint, and there's his viewpoint. And if we can focus on his viewpoint, it will unite us. So how is this possible? Well, Paul carries on. He says this. uh, Sorry, at the beginning of the chapter, he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, and we've talked a lot about that over the last few weeks, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So listen. So then the law was our guardian. It held us back. I talked about that last week. Until... Christ came. So we, we, there's sin in our life, there's, there's, there's shame, there's guilt, and then you believe in Jesus, you submit your life to him, you ask for forgiveness, you recognize his lordship on the cross, you recognize that he died for your sin, your shame, your guilt, you recognize that Jesus changes your life, and suddenly there's freedom, there's new creation, there's unity. Faith radically changes us. And suddenly we're made common. We're made common. When Jesus Christ comes into your life, then we are made common. Suddenly there's this ability to love one another in a way that the world does not have. He carries on. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. And and, uh, Luke is going to be talking more about adoption next week. We're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ. So this radical change. So for those of you in the room who may be struggling with that side of your life that you are trying to keep hemmed in, you're trying to bring change, you're trying to do better, you're trying to be a better person, you're trying to be more moral, you're trying to be a great dad, a great mom, you're just... Let me just keep my life together and, and maybe if I can just be a good person then, then somehow God will accept me and I will be blessed. And what it is, that's outside of the teaching of Jesus. That is not what Jesus taught. What Jesus said is you will never be able to fix yourself. You will never be able to work hard enough for that blessing. The blessing comes by belief and faith in Jesus Christ that starts with us submitting our life to him and saying, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner, forgive me. Come into my world, change me. That that moment, you are a new creation. And you are sons. We are in Christ together. We put on, literally overshadow. It's like putting a cloak of Jesus over our lives. You start reading the New Testament, you'll start seeing who it is in Christ you truly are. In Romans 5.5, it says that the love of God has been poured into your life. So now, 
You have the ability by Jesus to love somebody who before you found completely unlovable. That you can love and like somebody who is radically different from you. So friends, if we're going into Starbucks or Tim Hortons or any walk of life and we're getting frustrated and we're getting angry and we're getting tense with other people around us, it's a mark of the lack of realization and understanding of who it is that lives in you and who you are as a Christian. As Christians, we should be the most loving, kind, gentle, uh, out kind of um, welcoming people on this planet. We shouldn't be quick to judge. We should be quick to show people love because love has been shown to you and me. Because I know who I am and I know what I've been saved from and I know the struggles and I know the challenges and I know that Jesus still loved me and it's the same with you so we take that into the world. It says in, in 1 Peter that he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have in you the capability of taking Jesus into the world and showing that world a remarkable, radical love and care. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we have to be accepting and just say, because this is what happens, right? Pendulum swings. We either judgmental, unaccepting, outside, you know, like and pushing people away, hypercritical, hating... Or we swing the other way, all accepting, doesn't matter what you do in your life, you can have same-sex relationships, not a problem, Jesus loves you. It's either hyper-grace or hyper-legalist. There's a balance. We believe in the South totally in the Bible, even the bits that make people angry and uncomfortable. We believe that, but we believe that it can be lived out in a loving and kind way. We believe that. We believe that we can have disagreements with our world and yet be loving and kind while disagreeing. We can engage with the world because trust me, if you want to engage with somebody that you disagree with, you are far more likely to have them listen to you if you've shown a foundation of love and care beforehand. I've never known anybody getting argued into heaven. I've seen people loved and prayed into heaven if you excuse the terminology, you know what I mean. Not hated and argued into heaven. So what happens when you become a Christian is that Jesus suddenly becomes a living reality for us. He's not just some historical figure. He's not just somebody who was a good guy. He's not just somebody who was a good teacher. He actually becomes a living reality to us. Our new identity together. And that's what Jesus himself said will make people sit up and take notice out there because they don't have that. They don't have that. Jesus defines us. Not our age anymore, not our money, not our race, not our sex, not our... None of that defines us anymore. What defines us is the one called King Jesus and his love for me and love for you and his passion and his desire to see you become one of his sons or daughters. That defines us. His love defines us. Peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, faithfulness. That defines us because it defined him. And the scripture says that lives in me now. I have that capability. I have that capability through his Holy Spirit. Look what it says in Colossians 3. This is such a beautiful, beautiful scripture. Let the peace of Christ rule. 
in your hearts, I'll explain this in a minute, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule. So let's just be really honest with one another for a second. And I'm going to be truthful in my world. Often, my life can look like this. Let the peace of Christ be present in my heart. Not rule. There's a difference, right? That, that there's a difference between Jesus being Lord of my life and me leaning on him. Um, a few years ago, and I actually, I think it was last week, I gave a fishing analogy. We've been watching this program on, uh, on BBC iPlay around fishing, which is hilarious and it's fun. And so I've been thinking more about fishing again. Um, and uh, another, those of you who were here last week, you heard about me going salmon fishing. Earlier on, on that same trip, something happened. And what happened again, I was with my friend Phil and, and we were going up uh, to get up Indian Arm River to the salmon that I talked about last week. So Indian Arm River actually starts a, a large kind of um, area in Vancouver and it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and you literally have to drag your boat over rocks and, and it's just a lot of fun. So we had this rib uh, boat which we were jumping in and out of regularly. So it was kind of fun. It was a beautiful day. So it's like the water gets shallow. We were pushing off rocks. We are just trying to get up this, this little river to where the salmon were. And so by the time we were maybe halfway up this little river, I was kind of getting into this. I was doing the whole Titanic thing on the front of the boat, keeping, keeping watch for the rocks. And I said to Phil, there's a big rock coming, Phil. And so Phil was trying to, trying to move around because you, you could literally see out of, the, out of the water, out of the river, there was this kind of um, the, the top of the rock. It was round like that. But those of you who have spent much time on water and rivers, it's very deceptive how deep it is. It can actually look quite shallow, but it's much deeper than it actually looks. I don't know if you've had personal experience of that. Um, But I'm seeing this rock come up, and I can see the rock underneath. And I said, Phil, you need to go around. So Phil is trying to get around. We're just drifting towards this, this rock. And so I thought I'd man up and jump out of the boat, and, and pushes away from the rock. No big deal. Apart from I misjudged the depth. And so what actually happened was we got close to the, the... I was at the front of the boat, got close to the rock. I leaned over, put one leg out of the boat, had my hand on top of the rock, but my leg just carried on going down. It was much deeper than I realized. So I'm in this kind of weird Bruce Lee moment where my, arm is, my leg is up here somewhere still in the boat. My hand is on the rock. My leg is trying to find the bottom of the river. And my hand just slips off the top of the rock and it hits me right in the chestices, right, right, right in the ribs, really sore. And then I go under and I come out. Of course, those of you, especially the guys in the room, will understand this. There is no sympathy when you're with a guy. If you hurt yourself, you can chop your arm off. The first instinct will be to laugh, then ask if everything's okay. And sure enough, I come up out of the water. Phil is killing himself laughing. I got this searing pain in my chest. I just slip right off this rock. And it actually caused me a lot of pain for weeks. I, I, it was hard. It was, thanks for those of you laughing. Um, so it, it was sore. This rock was not moving for anyone. This was a big rock. In hindsight, it was at least this deep, the water, because I went under So this rock was like a big rock in the middle of the river. This rock ain't going anywhere. 
the river is going around the rock. Now, there are some rocks that are small and get pushed out of the way by the river. This rock isn't getting pushed away. This rock is maintained in its strength, in its mass, in its glory. Literally what glory means. It's presence. That's exactly what being a Christian is about. That Jesus Christ is your rock and he's in your life. Your life, he does not get moved around by you. Your life moves around him. He is Lord of your life. That's what you're declaring when you're a Christian. You're not saying he's just present. He rules. So for you to truly experience the unity and the love of the saints, you need to allow Christ to rule in your life. So if you're getting very tense and angry and frustrated with people, the question has to be, and I present it to you lovingly, is Christ ruling in your heart or is he just present? Is your life actually pushing Jesus around like somehow he's just this added activity? Or is he solid and your life moves around it? Your parenting moves around it. Your friendship moves around it. Your relationship, your marriage, your workplace, your employers, your employees, everything you do moving around this rock, this one who rules. That's what Christianity is. And if he rules, there's unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your life. And so what is one of the proofs, if you like, of Christ ruling in your life? This verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no female nor male. Uh, There's no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Something very important to understand. This is not a verse used for um, equality on a political level or on a socioeconomic level or anything like that. So that's not what the verse is talking about. What it's talking about is that before Christ, we were, there was no unity. After Christ, we are one. We're brothers and sisters. Paul is not saying there are no distinctions. He's just saying they don't define or exclude anybody anymore. So male and female are still male and female. This is not about multiple genders. It's, it's that there's disti- Put it this way. When you become a Christian, it's like a stew, not a smoothie. You know what I mean? All right, you put all your ingredients, you and me, in this smoothie, and you smooth it out. Right? You want it smooth. You want lumpy bits in your smoothie. That's gross. That's horrible. That's not Christianity. That's not church. There is still male and female. There are still differences. There's different changes. That's what makes it beautiful. We're a stew. A stew has lumpy bits, bits of beef and dumplings and carrots and potatoes. That, you can see, oh, there's a potato. There's an Eli. Sorry, Eli. No, beef. There's a bit of beef. Eli. That's better. There's a dumpling. I'm not saying anybody. I'm definitely not saying you terrible. You're my little carrot. We, and you leave the best bits till the end if you're anything like me when you eat stew. Stew's good. So there's still distinction. It's just that it doesn't define or exclude anybody. Do you know it's the difference? The scripture is not talking about, oh, there's the scripture to say there are multiple genders. No, male and female, Adam and Eve. You can read the rest of the mega theme in the Bible. It's right there. There are still Jews by nationality and Greeks by nationality, but they're not defined or excluded. There is still rich and they're still poor, but they're not excluding. 
There's a, there's a difference. There's a distinction, and that's okay. It makes us a wonderful Jesus-like stew that people enjoy and want to be part of. Not a smoothie with lumpy bits. That's not what we were called to be. That's deep in the Greek, the whole smoothie thing. There's no more privilege. Did you hear me say that? Your ethnicity does not give you privilege anymore when you're in Christ. Your sex does not give you privilege anymore. You're all privileged in Christ. You're, you're rich or poor, white or black. It does not give you any privilege if you're in Christ. You are all one in Christ. And so as a church, we take this message out into the world and it blows people's minds. Because the king, that world is trying to have kingdom without the king. It's trying to have, and, and there's a wonderful book by a, a pastor from Australia called John Sayer who talks about this. That's his phrase. The, the world wants a kingdom without the king. They want Christian principles. They want Christian values. They want equality. They want social justice. They want love. They want care. They want all these good things without the king. But without the king, you will never have any of those things because we continually go to ourselves and we're inherently selfish. You bring King Jesus into it, he becomes the focus, and suddenly our non-negotiables become negotiables. We're not hanging on to things as defining us because he defines us. And so we take that into the world and it blows the world's mind. The very thing that they want desperately, they can't find because they're not looking to the king as the one who actually can bring it. In Christ so the distinctions don't disappear. They just don't define us. There's a wonderful verse, and I really like this uh, paraphrase of it. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. And this is my encouragement as I bring this to an end. Christian friends, how do we have Christ rule in our hearts? How do we enjoy this unity? How do we bring love? How do we take this into the world? Our instinct, and as a pastor, as a doer, my instinct is, there must be a program for that. Is it, is it, can we not go on right now media and watch a bunch of videos and get a book and learn how to do that? No, no, that's not. It emerges out of our hearts by concentrating on being completely devoted to Christ. Isn't that wonderful? If you do nothing else this week, your call to action in marketing terms, your CTA... Concentrate on being completely devoted to Christ. Concentrate, focus, meditate. Make it your object of attention. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Concentrate, prioritize. Get up in the morning and prioritize him, his word, his meditate on it. Think about it, journal it out, sing it. Concentrate on it. Concentrate on something like you would your project that you want to prioritize or your thing at work or whatever your priority is right now like we do on our kids or make him your concentration. Being devoted to him and you will find that the unity and the love and the joy and the passion and the gifting will emerge out of your life that you don't go into the world and go, right, today I'm going to be more patient. Today I'm going to be more humble. I'm going to be the humblest Humble person that anyone has seen today. How are you? I'm so humble. It's ridiculous. You can't work on humility. You work on this, then humility emerges. Patience emerges. Love emerges. 
that which you truly are, your true reality becomes part of who you are. You become devoted to Christ. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and prayer and breaking of bread and fellowship. This personal devotion, let's do that. Let's work for it. Let's guard it. Let's, let's be enthusiastic to it. Let's fight for it. And I, I promise you, you will have to fight for this because your world is geared to, against and away from this, not towards it. There's always something else. Always another distraction. Guard it. Stop the things that divide us. Let's concentrate on the things that unite us. Let's stop the gossiping and the criticism if we're inclined towards doing that. Let's believe the best first. Let's put this into action and show a divided world what a true kingdom with a king, what that looks like. The values and the justice and the peace and the equality. The very core of Christianity goes out with us into this broken and hurting and anxious world. Showing that love is stronger than hate and anger. That unity that we have. That people will be banging on our door going, I, how do you, what, what's going on in there? That's, that's nuts. I want that. I want that. To show them the gospel is true and life-changing. We're going to move into communion now, and, and I want us to take it together. I want us to hold the bread and, 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 and the wine, the juice, and we're going to eat together as a sign of our unity. But before we do that, I want to show you a quote from a, from a pastor in New York from the 1950s. His name was John Hoos, and he said this, It is a growing conviction of mine that no parish can fulfill its true function unless there is at its very center, spelled wrong, of its leadership lives a small community of quietly fanatic, changed and truly converted. The quietly fanatic, changed and truly converted Christians. The trouble with most parishes is that nobody, including the pastor, is greatly changed. Such people cannot win the brutally pagan life of a city like New York for Christ. We want quiet fanatics. I like that. I want to be a quiet fanatic. Concentrating, devoted to Jesus Christ, allowing his love and unity to emerge from me. So that when I come face to face with somebody who is clearly sinning and in the wrong and against what I believe as a Christian, I can still embrace them lovingly pointing them to Jesus, not condoning their sin, but accepting that I too am a sinner saved by his love and his grace. That will change a world. That will turn a world upside down. Let's do that this week. Amen? Let's share communion together. Sarah, if you could come and lead us. I'm going to spend a little bit of time worshiping and praying, applying perhaps some of the things that you've heard this morning. So Sarah's going to lead us, and the team are going to lead us in a song. And as is our kind of little tradition, as any part of this song, you can come and you can take some bread and juice. You just dip the bread in, the juice, and there's some gluten-free, I believe, at the back. And um, as we do that, I want you to actually hold the bread and the juice just for a second. And at the end of the song... I'm going to come back up 
and we're going to take it united. We're going to stand together and we're going to take it as united kingdom people. Just as a sign and a symbol of who makes us common, who makes us one, which is Jesus. So this is your own personal time to come and reflect and pray, to dip the bread and then hold the bread. And then we'll take it together before the final song that Sarah will lead for us.